0: Hello, hello. Kristen here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded before the podcast name change. If you hear any old terminology, that's why. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Notable Woman Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Downs, and I'm happy to bring you today's interview with the Reverend Lorraine Peterson. Lorraine and I met at Cedar Crest College in Allentown, Pennsylvania, while we were both pursuing our undergraduate degrees. I was impressed with her then for her spiritual commitment, and that feeling has only continued as time has gone on. The road to becoming a pastor is a long one, as Lorraine will describe in this episode, and she's rolled with all the punches and drama and never lost her focus. In recent years, Lorraine's time spent as a pediatric chaplain has brought her to near superhero status in my eyes. She helps families and children undergoing some of life's most devastating tragedies, the sort of horror that, for me as a new mama, I just can't imagine. Lorraine helps families carry life's heaviest burdens in a time of serious need. She is a notable woman, and I think you'll be inspired by her story. I'll be back at the end of this episode to fill in any gaps. Welcome to the Notable Woman Podcast. I am so happy to introduce today's guest, Reverend Lorraine Peterson. Reverend Peterson is an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Most recently, Reverend Peterson was doing a second-year residency to specialize in pediatric chaplaincy at Riley Hospital for Children in Indiana. Her research focuses on the intersection of play and spirituality. Please join me in welcoming Lorraine. Hi, Lorraine. Thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Kristen, I'm so excited to be here with you. Is there anything you'd like to add to your introduction? Uh, Yes, I really
1: love coloring and finger painting.
0: That's awesome. Do you uh, have any of those adult coloring books? I do. I have several. Awesome.
1: I also have some children's coloring books. I think they're more fun.
0: That is very cool. I'm happy to hear that. They're less intricate,
1: and so I get annoyed less easily.
0: You know, one of my staff members actually said at our last staff meeting that she likes the children's ones as well, so... Apparently very popular thought. So I have known you since your freshman year of college. We won't say how old I was then. But even then, you knew you wanted to be a reverend. How did you first know?
1: So I first started talking about the potential of being a pastor with my mom when I was just barely two. We were leaving church one Sunday morning, and I was holding her hand, and we were walking out. And I said, Mama, would I get big... I'm going to be the pastor so I can do all the talking in church.
0: That's amazing.
1: (laughs) Uh, Which will surprise nobody who knows me.
0: Not a soul.
1: (laughs) Since then, uh, I did not actually remember that story uh, on my own. My mom told it to me later once I had sort of developed my sense of call. I guess the first time it came up, I was a freshman in high school, and I had been going through a pretty rough time in my faith. And I wasn't so sure if I believed in God or if I liked God or what the deal was. And uh, our pastor's son and I were close. He had been our youth pastor type person for a while. And then he was off at seminary and he came home and we were having a conversation in which I was telling him that I wasn't so sure that I believed in God or liked God or any of that. And He said he listened to all of that and he affirmed all of that. And he told me that questioning was actually not a sign that my faith was gone, but really a sign that my faith was deepening and becoming my own. And by the way, he said at the end of this conversation, I think you'd make a good pastor. And I looked at him like he had 12 heads. But as I worked my way, as God helped me work my way through that really dark time in my life and things got better and I was able to sort of pray about it and talk about it with other people I realized that being a pastor made a lot of sense for me. However, to be fair, by the time I got to college, the first couple of months, I really thought I was going to be a forensic scientist, like on CSI. That was totally my plan. I had given up on the idea of being a pastor when I realized that preaching on every every Sunday would be like writing a paper every week, and I had really no desire to have to do that. And, and so I sort of looked for other options, and I thought about being a chef for a while, and then a forensic scientist and but but early in my freshman year I was getting up really early to go to church so that I could work with the youth group of a church Uh, And so I was spending like four and a half hours on a Sunday morning at church and waking up at 7.30 and what freshman in college thinks that 7.30 on a Sunday is a great idea. And so it sort of became clear again that being a pastor was the right road for me and that that was my sense of call. And there have been times, though, when I have doubted myself and doubted my call and wondered if maybe God was just calling the person next to me really loudly and I just happened to overhear it and get confused. But again and again I am reminded that the gifts that God has given me have created me to be a pastor and more recently a chaplain. This past year as a pediatric chaplain, I totally came to this place where it was really clear that it's exactly who I am created to be. All of my gifts and all of my skills are things I get to use every single day in that job and I I love it and it's such a gift.
0: That's amazing. Now what was the journey from from your undergraduate studies to becoming Pastor Lorraine?
1: So after I graduated with my bachelor's in college, I actually went through four majors at Cedar Crest because I could major in anything, and it took me a little while to land on something. I finally ended up with psychology and loved it, uh, but it could have been anything. It could have been, I could have done the forensic science thing all four years, My head might have imploded, but I could have tried. Uh, I could have done theater, which I tried for a while until I was sitting in a class with rocks thinking about lighting and how to make sure nobody looked green. And I thought, I don't think I'm really going to use this in my life. It's fascinating, but I don't think I'm going to use it. So then I ended up at psych. So I graduated with that bachelor's degree, and then I went straight into seminary, which is a master's level program. And in the Lutheran Church, it's four years, the third year of which is a full-year internship. So I went to the Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia, and I did my first year of classes. I contemplated quitting a couple of times uh, just because it was hard work, and I wasn't so sure of myself as we've previously discussed. And, And yet I made it through, and then I went to Oregon for the summer to do this process called clinical pastoral education, which is where you do ministry and then you reflect on it in a peer group. And then you go do more ministry. So it's action and then reflection and then action is the model. The best way I can explain it is that it's a way of figuring out who you are and what you bring to the table and how what you bring to the table helps and how it gets in the way and what you can do to sort of own that and acknowledge it and maybe get in your own way a little less. So I did that. And then I went back and did my second year. And then I started my internship that June right after my second year and was there for a full year, at which point I then went back and did my last year. And then I went and did a full year residency of clinical pastoral education, so CBE. I did a whole year of that afterwards before I started seeking ordination for a number of reasons, but it just felt like the right next step. And I really loved it. And I found out that I was really passionate about chaplaincy, uh, but I was still pretty focused on parish ministry. So um, it then took about a year between when I finished CPE and when I got a call to my church, the first church I served as a pastor so that during that time I worked at Starbucks uh, which was great I really enjoyed all the coffee and I interviewed at a couple of different churches that weren't the right fit and then I found the church that was the right fit and they called me to be their pastor and I accepted the call and then we all laughed and cried and celebrated together and yes and then you came to my ordination which was a really beautiful experience I was so glad that you could be there.
0: Let me step back for just one second. Oh did you feel like when you were in seminary that you were treated any differently because you were a woman
1: not in seminary in seminary being young was a pretty normal thing a lot of people were what we call pipeliners are people who sort of pipeline it straight from college into seminary, sort of straight into their first call. And and being a woman in the ELCA isn't as much of a challenge anymore because the ELCA has been ordaining women since 1970. So because of notable women who went before me and have done the hard work of breaking down those barriers, uh, it was not hard for me to get entrance into candidacy or to get into seminary or to hold my own in classes in seminary. I had strong female professors who were great examples of women in ministry, and I'd had a female pastor when I was a child, so there was never really a time in my life uh, that I thought I couldn't be a pastor, which was pretty remarkable. Uh, Actually, even more remarkable is that when I was two and I told my mom I thought I might be a pastor— we were part of a church that doesn't ordain women. The denomination that we belong to didn't ordain women at that point and still doesn't. And it would have been easy for my mom to say, oh, that's sweet or cute, honey, but women can't be pastors. And she never did that. My mom always supported me whatever I thought I wanted to do. And so she is a pretty amazing role model. In fact, She was a computer programmer starting in the 70s and in the Navy, and so I think having her as a role model for someone who entered a field that was not heavily populated by women when she got started sort of helped me believe that there was nothing I could not do because I was a woman. Since then, and the rest of the world, there are obviously some times where people look at me funny because I'm wearing the collar and it doesn't work for them that a woman's wearing a collar. Or, you know, where people think I'm, even now years later, uh, assume that I'm still like in my 20s. And so I must be too young to really have done much with my life or to be a pastor. You know, I I meet some of that in the world. But uh, not a whole lot. And because I've had such strong support leading up to now, they don't really let it shake me. It doesn't sort of touch the core of who I am.
0: You just mentioned that the church that you belonged to when you were growing up didn't allow women to serve as pastors. You and I obviously both think that women make great pastors and chaplains. And why is that?
1: To some extent, it's Because we're human beings and because human beings of any gender have great capacity to do the work that God has called them to do. And it's really unfortunate when churches put up barriers to letting people live out their call. I think some of the things that are unique to women who are pastors is a deeper level of empathy, and and a greater ability to show compassion. And I mean, I don't think that's not true of men. I don't think men are able to do those things. I think sometimes they have to work a little harder to get there. I think they do get there, but it's maybe not taught to them in the same way that it's taught to women as we're growing up as little girls. We're sort of trained to be nurturers and mothers and have empathy and compassion and try to understand things from other people's perspectives. And I wish that was something that was equally taught among the genders. I'm just not always sure that that's the way it works. And so I think that women have an ability to listen in a different kind of way, sort of innately or trained anyway. I also think we're able to be passionate about things, and again, I don't think this is specific necessarily only to women. I don't think men are incapable of it. But women have a passion for caring for others that, uh, that enables them to sort of fight for what is right uh, and what is just and uh, fight for inclusion for other people who are marginalized.
0: Now, moving uh, back, you've talked a little bit about some of the places that you've served. I think uh, you last mentioned the, the congregation that you were serving. Um, where did you go uh, after that? And, and what has been your favorite th- uh, place that you've worked so far? Okay.
1: So I've served as a, as a chaplain at Luther Crest, which is a retirement community, a Lutheran retirement community in Allentown. It's where I did my college internship. And so I was a student chaplain there. And then I was a chaplain resident at Erlanger Medical Center and T.C. Thompson Children's Hospital, which is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And most recently, I served as a chaplain at Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis, Indiana. In sort of terms of congregational work, I did field education as a vicar at Atonement Lutheran Church in Philadelphia. I then did a full year internship at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Holden, Massachusetts. And then I was a pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Connecticut. And so, of all of those, the one that I love best was Riley, which is the most recent. And I think that that is really because. I am so passionate about being a pediatric chaplain, and I feel as though I got to bring sort of the fullness of who I am into the work that I was doing. Not that I wasn't able to do that in other ways elsewhere, but it just felt like I was most fully who God created me to be in this role as a pediatric chapel.
0: I think I'm not the only one that is incredibly impressed in the work that it goes into being a pastor. It's amazing. I've always been impressed, but just to hear it all in a row like that, wow. Now, I don't think I'm the only one who would be curious about this, but tell me, how do ministers get jobs? Is there some sort of indeed.com for reverends? <laughs>
1: You know, that there are two answers to that question. So as a chaplain, really, I actually do use Indeed.com or Monster.com. I also use the Pediatric Chaplains Network and a number of other places where chaplaincy jobs get posted. But mostly it's like a normal job search like anybody else. However, and I can't speak to every con- every denomination because I haven't learned about their process as intricately as I have about the process in the ELCA, but our process is that pastors fill out paperwork about who they are as a pastor and what sort of congregation they think they're best suited to serve. And then congregations fill out paperwork about who they are as a congregation, their numbers, their demographics, their strengths, their challenges and they talk about what they're looking for from a pastor. And then a bishop's assistant plays Yenta with the paperwork and matches them up. And then it's a little bit like going on a blind date. You show up for an interview, and you talk. And if that goes well, then you move to uh, the call committee coming and hearing that pastor preach at a neutral site. Because when you have six people show up at your congregation, it's pretty obvious. Like if they're new and they all sit together and they're comparing notes it becomes a little obvious maybe your pastor's looking for a new job and that gets a little weird and then if that goes well then the pastor has a meeting with the con the congregational council and if that goes well then the pastor has a sermon preaches a sermon at the congregation where the congregation then has the opportunity to vote about whether or not to call that pastor And then the pastor has, I believe it's two weeks to decide whether or not to accept that call. And if they extend the call and you accept the call, then you are their new pastor. And if not, you go back to the drawing board on both sides. It's a little complicated.
0: Now, I am geeking out a little bit over your research topic. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I would love
1: to. So... Play is really important for children. It's how they learn about the world it's how they communicate it's how they figure out physics and cause and effect and how they figure out about their own sort of power in the world and and so play is play seems a lot of times like a side task or something that, isn't as important or sort of frivolous, especially once we get to grown ups. we talk about play as though it's pretty trivial. But for children, play is fundamental and it's how they learn empathy and it's how they learn resilience. And so I went to a conference about play and it really changed the way I thought about it. I had sort of thought about play as a means to an end It was a way to connect with a child so that I could do the important work of being their chaplain. So I could get them to open up to me or talk to me or whatever else they needed in that space. Once I had played with them, then we could get to the real like, deep, meaningful stuff. And this conference and the speakers there helped me realize that play, especially with children, is the meaningful, deep, purposeful, important stuff. And so I got to play with play a lot this year. And as a chaplain, when you're meeting a child and their family, part of the job at the beginning is doing a spiritual assessment and figuring out what their resources are and what their needs are and how you can help sort of intervene, you know, use interventions to help strengthen them in the places that they need that. And a lot of that looks like normalization and fear and isolation when you're in the hospital. And so being able to think about play as a tool for both spiritual assessment, so figuring out what the child's strengths are and what their needs are and what they understand about the world around them and sort of their outlook on life and how they're doing from a psychosocial point of view. Also then, so that can be done with play, but it also helps me move into using play as an intervention to help them feel less afraid or less alone. Uh, And for me, play incorporates a lot of things. So play can be using art or music or storytelling. Play can be using figurines or imaginative play. Play often looks like peekaboo. I have a glitter wand that sort of has those air bubbles and I refer to it as the magic wand and I'll take it out and use it to help children focus and feel a greater sense of calm. Sometimes I'll take it out to help myself focus and feel a greater sense of calm in the middle of a hectic day. And so play has a lot of different components to it, but a lot of it for me is being focused on where the child is and sort of following their lead. The research is sort of geared towards creating. So what I did this year, actually, is I created several different case studies that demonstrated the ways in which I used play to understand where the child was and also to then help that child feel more safe, more secure, more connected, more optimistic about the the future.
0: That's really amazing work.
1: It it was very exciting. And my hope is to continue that research in a more formalized way in the future. But we'll see. I think it would require some grant writing and funding that I haven't quite had time for yet.
0: Well, that is uh, absolutely what The Notable Woman is all about. It's about connecting people with ideas like you have, this idea of the intersection of play and spirituality with folks that might want to help you out. So
1: that's exciting.
0: And we'll make sure that we get your contact info at the end so that people know how to reach out to you. Awesome.
1: One of the things I'd like to add to all of this is that along the way, because I was presenting to a peer group and to my department and to other professionals within the hospital, about the work that I was doing around play, I could see very clearly, especially when I was working with our interns or our, our first year residents and teaching them about play, I noticed that when I invited them to play, it helped to deepen their spirituality too. I think a lot of times we think that play is just for kids and we tend to trivialize it. And we tend to think that if we're not being busy, and productive in sort of the traditional sense of the word, then we're wasting our time. But, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but play is essential even for us as adults. And so reconnecting with play in my own life and helping other people that I work with do that was pretty exciting to see as well. And to see the ways in which then, chaplains who work with adults were able to bring that play into their work too meant a lot because it's easy to think about play with children as being important but it's harder to sort of justify playing with adults but I think it's important too.
0: For us uh, theater folks we certainly like play so I think that we're both big fans. Now switching gears a little bit I know that I'm I can't be the only one who has had trouble with her faith, particularly when we see all the atrocities in the world, and then the personal tragedies that happen to us and others that we just can't understand. Has that happened to you as a woman of faith, and and how do you deal with it? Oh, it happens a lot.
1: I mean, my first sense of call post cute two year old, uh, wanting to not be shushed in church. Um, but my first sort of real sense of call when I was a freshman in high school came out of a pretty dark time when I couldn't understand the way the world worked. A young man in the town that I grew up in who I sort of vaguely knew through friends but didn't really know well uh, committed suicide. And it was really hard for me, even though I didn't know him well, to understand that how somebody could get to a place that was that dark and to sort of understand where God was in that and, and so it's sort of interesting for me that my sense of call came out of that and has since developed into working in a pediatric setting where I work with men and women and children who are having the absolute worst day of their lives all the time. I see children who have cancer, who have been in horrible accidents, uh, in trauma, you know, and, and and I see those things, and I think these should not be happening. I have stood with mamas and daddies while their babies have died, and parents are not meant to outlive their children. It's just not the way the world ought to be. And the thing I find is that it breaks my heart, and there are times when in the past it has shaken my feet. But my understanding of God is that God is shown most fully, the true nature of God is shown most fully in the cross, in the suffering of Jesus, in Jesus' own brokenness and feeling of abandonment, and ultimately death. That's where we see God most fully revealed to us. And yes, we are people who believe that death never has the final answer. As, As a Christian, I believe in the resurrection, and I believe that new life always comes out of death. But that doesn't make death less painful. What that teaches me is that God is right there with us in our suffering. So that when we suffer, God is not some faraway being who's thinking, ha, I don't think you're suffering enough. Let me add a little more because I won't give you more than you can handle. That phrase annoys me more than anything else, by the way. What I think is that God is right there holding us up and strengthening us and weeping with us and helping us to face unspeakable heartache. And so for me as a chaplain, I get to be the hands and the feet of God. Uh, I once had a mother tell me, and this has shaped my whole ministry since then. I once had a mom tell me that I had showed up at a time when she was praying about wishing that she could reach out and touch God because even though she believed in God, it was hard to really sort of, hold on to that in that moment without anything tangible to reach out and touch. And she said that in that moment I became for her God with skin on. And I think there's such breaks in that. And I don't think it's just because I'm a pastor or just because I'm a chaplain. I think that we are all called to be that love embodied in the world. And we all have that opportunity. And I think there will never be an answer good enough for why kids have cancer or why kids get hurt and killed in car accidents or why babies suddenly stop breathing unexpectedly. None of that will ever make sense. And even if I got the answers, I don't think I'd ever really be okay with them. I think what I hold on to is that God shows up and God doesn't just show up in sort of a distant out there in your head kind of way, but God shows up through men and women and children who show that love of God every
0: day. The world is lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. What would you say is the biggest assumption that people make about you as a pastor? That I
1: am holier than thou and very self-righteous and that you shouldn't cuss in front of me and that I would never ever drink.
0: Good, Good to know.
1: I feel like people definitely think that I am somehow like on this pedestal way up high closer to God. And so I'm, like, not really a human being.
0: Yes, uh, we've been known to sailor it up a little bit.
1: It's true. In fact, Kevin Gallagher used to wonder how I was going to be a pastor. Because I cussed, like a sailor.
0: That's it's a, it's a habit that I personally am working on now that I have a one-year-old.
1: I work on it, too, because I work with the tiny humans, and I shouldn't pass that on to them. But... At the same time, I don't get offended when other people cuss. It doesn't bother me in the same sort of way. I think they assume it will once they say it.
0: I hear you, Pastor Lorraine. Now, what would be your thoughts for a woman who feels called to serve the way you have?
1: I would wish her all the blessings in the world. I would want her to to strike out on that path with courage and confidence and grace, I would want her to know that if she is in a denomination that does not support her, that she should either stay and fight and make great headway uh, with her determination, or she should find a denomination that will support her and embrace her and celebrate her for who she is. And either of those are perfectly acceptable. But if she chooses the one where she stays and she works towards breaking down those barriers, she should find a very, very good support group to help her while she's doing that. I would want a woman starting out on this, actually, I would want any person starting out on this journey to know that a good therapist and fabulous friends are invaluable, but both are important. And I would, I think I would want to share that even the hard stuff, the stuff that feels like it's going to break you or the doubts that feel like, They're just going to cause your resolve to crumble, even the times when it feels like you are undoubtedly in the wrong place, that God is there with you and that God is working through you in that situation and to be open and to be persistent because often those situations are the ones you look back on and think, gosh, that is the best thing that ever happened to me. A little bit like how I feel about being at Riley. I was a little overwhelmed when I first got there and I was pretty sure Back at the end of September, when I had been there for just a month, I was pretty certain that I had made a huge, colossal mistake. And I was counting down the weeks until the 53 weeks of my program were over until somewhere around week 47. And then I stopped counting and then the time flew by and then I fell in love with the place and the people. And then leaving became so hard because it was so clear that it was where I was supposed to be and that I had gained so much, uh, including new resurrection life from this place and these people who helped me love myself again in a whole new way. And so I think that's important to hold on to is that even the stuff that's really hard, even the stuff that feels like you can't continue through to not let it dissolve your courage or your compassion.
0: Now, what is the one thing that you want to make sure people take away from this podcast?
1: I want everyone listening to this podcast to know how deeply they are loved and to know that they have gifts and skills to offer the world that no one else has, a combination that is unique to you. And the world will be a less awesome place if you aren't using your gifts and sharing them. And and if that's work that you get to do that makes you money, then that's awesome. And if it's not, then I hope you find ways to use, use your gifts and skills to share the love that this world so desperately needs in other ways.
0: Now, I feel that. Books are a great way to introduce people to something they know very little about, and I know that you are a big reader as well as you know that I am. Now, do you have a book you would love to recommend to our Notable Woman audience about uh, women in faith or really any other topic you'd love to focus on?
1: I actually have several. So I think your point about books being a great way to help people understand things they don't really know a lot about is so important. And I think books are best when they teach us something about ourselves, something that is true about ourselves, and something that is true about a situation we don't really know or understand, sort of, simultaneously at the same time when they help us sort of gain empathy for other people and empathy for ourselves. And so there are actually two books that I want to talk about. So the first one is called, it's fiction, and it's called The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making. And it's by Catherine Embellin. And it's young adult fiction, and it talks about a girl named September who gets whisked away to fairyland and who goes on this grand adventure and oh, my, September is a notable woman. She is fierce and courageous and irascible and incredible. And the the language that the author uses is stunning and incredible and beautiful and captivating. And my favorite character in the book actually is the narrator who is her own character. And it the narrator is written in such a way that the reader feels like a co-conspirator in the adventure with the narrator. So we get to know things that September doesn't know yet and and things like that and it it's just incredible and I can't say enough good things about it and I don't want to hype it up too much because Sometimes that can make people less excited to read it, but really, I hope you do. I think it just teaches a lot of truth about the world. In fact, I use it often in devotions with our chaplaincy staff. The other book I want to recommend is called An Altar in the World by Barbara Brown Taylor. Really, anything written by Barbara Brown Taylor is amazing. But this book in particular talks about the ways in which there is is grace and holiness and spirituality to be found everywhere we go and not just in the church walls or in the synagogue walls or the mosque walls or whatever place you tend to do the worship that you do in your own faith. And it's just, it's stunning and it's really helpful to remember that whether you're in the hospital or in the woods or at the dry cleaner, that there are holy moments all around you. And I think that this book does a really beautiful job of helping you think about the ways in which your faith can be a part of your everyday life.
0: Now, if you could leave us with your favorite Bible verse. What would it be, and why does it have significance for you?
1: So my favorite Bible verse is Romans eight twenty six to 39, and it's a little on the long side, so bear with me, but I'm going to read it to you. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I just want to read that last verse again. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So that's my favorite for a lot of reasons. It's long, I know, so it holds a bunch of stuff. But the idea that God's spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray, when our sighs or our tears or our weeping or our wailing is just that deep down from the depths of your being, kind of weeping and wailing, that somehow that turns into God knowing what we need, and that that is prayer. That comes into my work all the time. Parents who have no idea what sort of things to say, and I tell them, your tears and your sighs are your prayer, and God hears you. The next section talks about those who are called by God. And the thing is, it makes it all about what God does and not about what we do. Because if it was up to me, I fall on my face regularly and my faith gets shaky and I'm not so certain. And so if it were up to me, I'd fail every time at being who God wants me to be. But God makes me who God wants me to be because of who God is and not because of who I am. <clears throat> and then this idea from verses 31 to 39 that that nothing can separate us from God's love. In In the times in my life where I have struggled with my faith and I have felt separated from God, this verse helps me hold on. And part of that is that angels are listed and angels are God's messengers. And so if not even God's own messengers could separate us from God's love. There's something about that that just seems extraordinarily powerful to me and makes me feel as though there is nothing that I can do or that can be done to me that would make God love me any less. And that that is what strengthens me. And that that is what fills me up with what I need to do the work I am called to do. And that's a pretty amazing gift. So that's my favorite. And that's what I want to leave with all of you this day.
0: Now, for all of our fundraisers and grant writers and playas, How can people connect with you?
1: So my email address is reverend, R-E-V-E-R-E-N-D-L-E-P for my initials. So reverend, L-E-P at gmail.com. And that is the most reliable way to get a hold of me.
0: Lorraine, thank you so much. This has been an amazing podcast. I'm very happy to have you in my first group of podcasts to be released. It's been great talking to you, and I hope you have a really, really, really amazing time working on this research and I hope that we at the notable woman can help
1: such an honor to be here with you. You are, of course, one of my personal heroes, and so you inviting me to do this means so much, and I've had so much fun talking with you. And uh, really look forward to hearing about all of the amazing things going on through the notable woman uh, that are yet to come.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with the Reverend Lorraine Peterson as much as she and I enjoyed having that conversation.